I wonder if you've ever thought about how you would write the story if you had been God in Genesis chapter 3. What your response would have been to the fall of mankind. What your response would have been to Adam and Eve in the garden as she takes and eats from the tree and gives some to her husband who was with her. I wonder what your response would be in uh, Genesis as it continues to unfold when you watch uh, the, the sin of these people continue to abound and abound and abound until in Genesis 6 when you get to the, the situation with the worldwide flood. I, I wonder what story you would write when you come to Exodus and you take this, uh, this murderer um, whose name is Moses and who's uh, on the run and hiding in this middle of nowhere town called Midian. Uh, out in the, the wilderness, and you, you take him and you tell him as you're in this burning bush, and you tell him, Moses, I'm going to send you to free my people. And he says, God, you, you've got the wrong person. I have a speech impediment. Send somebody else. I wonder how you would write the rest of that story. Or I wonder how you would write the story if you think about King David, this man who uh, you had set up to succeed. He had been anointed by Samuel, and you had preserved him while he was on the run from this guy named Saul, who was the the king that the people demanded that you gave them to say, this is the type of king that you want. Fine, have this type of king. Meanwhile, I'm going to raise up another king. This king's name is David, and he's going to be a man after my own heart. I wonder how you would write the rest of the story as you watch David refuse to go out to battle with his troops the way he should have. And he's on the, the rooftop, and he looks out, and he sees this woman bathing. And rather than fleeing from that, he lingers and calls her to be with him and sleeps with her and impregnates her and then murders her husband. I wonder how you would write the rest of David's story. We can go on from there all the way up until we get to you and me in, in our story. How would you respond to sin? Well, God responded with what we've been looking at last week and the week before that and this week, and that is the death of his son. God responded by sending his son, as we're going to look at tonight, on a mission that was not just impossible, but inconceivable. Inconceivable in the sense that none of us would have written things this way. None of us would have designed the gospel the way that God designed the gospel. None of us would. If we were in charge humanity would be in a whole heap of trouble because there's no way we could have ever predicted, conceived of, thought of what God does through his son for us. These last few weeks, tonight being the final one, we're looking at the superiority of the death of Jesus, that Jesus is better because the alternative is this setup. The, the temple setup, the setup where we are separated from God. There's this chasm between us. Physically, there's a veil that separates us, and we're not allowed back in there. In fact, only one person, the, whole, the high priest, was allowed in there, and not only one time a year, and only if he brought the qualified sacrifice, the qualified offering, was he allowed to go in there. This was what was there. Well, God decided, I'm going to give a, a better sacrifice through a better high priest, and that's going to do away with all of this. And that's been the theme of our time the past few weeks is looking at the superiority of the sacrifice of Jesus. And we're going to kind of finish that focus tonight in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 18. The author begins in Hebrews 10 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the things, the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, the law that is, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law has but a shadow. You probably grew up out here going to Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm, or maybe you just remember from Fall Fest. 
seeing the kitty rides, and at one point in time in your life, being really excited about the kitty rides. This last fall fest that was here, my twins were super stoked about the train, the mini train on the track. That thing went like half of a half of a mile an hour, like slowest, most tedious thing. It was like I was cringing when they wanted to get on it because I just knew I was going to be standing there watching them take 40 minutes to go around a circle that had a diameter of five feet. Um, like this thing was, not, but to them it was the coolest. But then later on, we, uh, we worked our way further around Fall Fest, and, and we got to the gigantic slide that you got to ride down, right? And, and they wanted to go on that this time. Well, they went up, and they went down that gigantic slide, and they caught the thrill of that gigantic slide. And you know what they didn't want to do anymore? They didn't want to go on the train anymore. Next year, I'm starting with the slide. But you guys remember that, right? You remember being so excited about the kiddie rides because in your mind, they weren't the kiddie rides. They were, this is super cool, right? Going to Legoland with my kids, there's this airplane ride that goes around like this. And, and the twins and Luke, when we were there a couple of years ago, they, they loved it. And they felt like it was a thrill ride for them. My older kids, they didn't want anything to do with it because it just didn't have the same excitement for them. Why? Because they knew something greater now. They knew what it was to be on an actual ride. A ride that kind of makes your stomach jump into your throat a little bit. A ride that you need to go make sure that you've emptied your bladder before you get on that ride, if you know what I'm saying. It's, a, it's one of those rides. They, they had experienced that, and now when they look at the, the, the kiddie ride, they look at it with a little bit of, of disdain because they're like, yeah, that's, that was good for a time, but it's not good anymore. It's not good anymore. That's what our writer's hinting at here, alluding to saying about the law. Saying, look, the law... It has but a shadow of the good things that have now arrived in Christ. The law, it had its purpose for a time. For a time, yes, we were under the old covenant, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. And even last week, we were under the, the Mosaic law. We had to obey God, and when we failed to obey God, yeah, we needed to bring our, our bulls and our calves and our birds, and we had to offer those as sacrificial offerings so that we would be forgiven, that, that the death had to take place, a reminder that our sin demands death, and the, the law had its purpose. The sacrificial system had its purpose, but even then, it, it was simply a shadow of the better things to come. Things pertaining to what? Things pertaining to, to Jesus, the true form of these realities. The greater high priest, the greater offering, when he's talking about the true form of these realities, this is not some mystical statement that he's saying here. Not some Gnostic elitist, super spiritual level of knowledge here. He's simply referring to everything that he's been talking about. That the, the law was a shadow of the good things that are now here. So he says, the law has but a shadow of these things. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who, have, who draw near. And we've talked about that the last couple of weeks. Those, those bulls, those goats, they didn't, really, they didn't really have much power in and of themselves. It was simply a, a sign of, of good faith on the part of the Israelite, trusting that God would accept that in a, as a substitute for their own death. But it didn't last. When they left and they sinned again, they had to bring another another goat. In fact, look at verse 2. He says, these things they, they, they can't perfect. Otherwise, if they could, would they not have ceased to be offered? Yes. If these were really powerful, if they really truly had a, a, any sort of substance to them, if they lasted, if they were effective, then they would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. I mean, if, if the Day of Atonement was really all that it was cracked up to be, then why did it happen every single year? That's what the author's saying here. He's saying it, it happened every single year because it, it needed to happen every single year because it didn't have power 
to last, power to endure. You remember week one in this mini-series here, we talked about how Jesus' death has dealt with our past. It's covering our present, and it's dealing with our, or securing for us our, our future. Well, that's what he's, he's going after here again. Verse three, but these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Man, they don't remove them from our conscience. They remind us of them. Every time we see the temple, we're smelling the, the, the food that's being sacrificed on the altar. That's a reminder of our sin. Every time we draw near the, the, the temple and we hear the bleeding of the, the bulls and the goats and the, the sheep and the, 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 the sounds of the animals, it's a reminder that those animals are going to die. Why? Because we are sinners and we need sacrifices to atone for our sins. And then his conclusion, which is the ultimate indictment against the Old Testament system in verse 4, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They can't truly cleanse us. Okay? This is a review, essentially, of where we've been. But it all comes down to this. The inherent weakness of the law is that the law cannot justify us. And that's why the sacrifices needed to be offered. Romans 3.20 says that no one, right, no one can be justified in the sight of God by keeping the law. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does he mean by that? Well, it means that the law brings knowledge of sin and that the law reveals that we can't obey the law. And so now we need to know what it is to fall short, which means we are sinful. But the law can't justify us. The law can't make us right before the Lord. That's the inherent imperfection. That's the inherent weakness. When he says the law has a shadow, don't go to Plato, okay? Not the, not the, the stuff that you mold and shape and, and, and dries and, and smells kind of funny. Not that kind of Plato. Plato, the, the philosopher. Don't go to the, the shadows in the, the, on the, the cave wall. That's not what he's talking about here, okay? Plato's shadows were all about what's real versus what's, what's conceptual or imaginary or a, a, a fake version of reality. You remember they're seeing the shadows cast on the, the wall and then somehow they get freed from the chains and they go outside and they realize, oh, that's really reality. This isn't reality. He's not saying that. He's not saying that the, shadow, that the law was a shadow in the sense that it wasn't something that was truly real, He's saying, no, it was a shadow in the sense that it's not as good as the the object. If I asked you, do you want a shadow of a million dollars or do you want a million dollars, what are you going to say? I want a million dollars. Well, the shadow's real. It's being cast by the million dollars, but you're going to want the reality. You're going to want the true form, not the shadow. That's what he's talking about. The the law has a, a shadow because if it could justify us, it wouldn't continue. The sacrifices wouldn't keep going. But instead, they continue every year reminding us over and over and over again of our sin. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse us from our sins. So then what was God doing with the sacrificial system? Did he not know this, right? What was his plan with all this? Did he not realize when he set everything in motion that the sacrificial system would not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper? Was he asleep on the job when he designed this and then woke up one day and was like, oh, wait a minute, this thing doesn't really work? No. No, instead, the sacrificial system was a placeholder in God's plan for redemptive history. It was something that he put in place to point to the greater reality that was to come. We're going to get there, but in in Hebrews chapter 11, the author ends by saying, in all of these though commended through their faith, because he's talking about the hall of faith, right? He's talking about by faith, Moses, by faith, David, by faith, all these people, right? And he lists all these amazing people from the Old Testament. 
And then he says this in verse 39, all these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Well, what is better for us that he's provided that they didn't know about? The cross. They didn't know about Jesus. And that's what's been provided that's better for us, that they are also made perfect. How are they made perfect by Jesus? Because what they trusted in, the Old Testament sacrificial system and these offerings and everything else was anticipating the coming of Jesus. And they were trusting in that by faith ahead of time. And so this was a placeholder. God didn't do the, the, the sacrificial system and then go, oh, I guess that didn't work out. We got to figure out something else. No, he put it in place so that his people would understand that there needed to be an atoning death for their sins and understand that uh, they had to come back year after year after year after year and that the desire to be able to, to not have to do that anymore was a good desire and a desire that could be met through the provision of God. Verse five, consequently, look, because the blood of bulls and goats can't satisfy, can't take away sins, verse five, consequently, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Why? Because they don't take away sins. They don't actually deal with sin. But a body you have prepared for me. This is a quotation from Psalm chapter 40. King David in Psalm chapter 40 says something very similar to this. Saying, look, you don't desire the, the sacrifices and offerings. So the, the writer of Hebrews is, is grabbing Psalm 40 and now applying it here to, to Jesus sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, verse 5, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, verse 7, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Uh, you're wondering what's the scroll of the book. Psalm chapter 40 it fills the rest of that in for us. It's the law. It's the Torah. It's the, the commandments of God. Jesus is saying, I've come to do your will. I've come to do what is written of me in the scroll of the book. But it's interesting, right? He says, uh, you have prepared for me, what, a, a body. You, you don't want the blood of bulls and goats, God. You want me, is what the writer is, is, is helping us understand what, what Jesus' mentality was. That the father prepared the son a body to be offered in place of the, the bulls and the goats. And what was the son's response to the father in this? You've prepared for me a body, and the son said what? Is there some other option here? No, what does verse 7 say? Behold, I have done what I have come to do. I've come to do your will. Okay, this is a, a glimpse inside. Y'all, we are eavesdropping in Hebrews chapter 10 on the conversation between the father and the son as it comes down to the cross. The father has prepared the son a, a body to offer a better sacrifice for us. And the son says to the father, I have come to do your will. That was always the plan. Always the plan. For Christ to come and die for sin. The sacrificial system was never meant to be the remedy. It was a placeholder. It was a shadow, and the object that cast the shadow was the cross. It was the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, and that was always God's plan for us. First point tonight is this. Appreciate 
that Jesus' death was part of God's plan. Appreciate that Jesus' death was part of God's plan. Jesus says there in verse 7, as plain as day, I have come to do your will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but what? Your will be done, Father. Your will be done. And so here's what that means. Because we know that Christ was nailed to the cross, we can conclude that the will of the Father was to crucify his Son. That it was God's plan, God's desire, God's will to kill Jesus for you and for me. But here's what we need to understand even more so, y'all. This was not like God scrambling when the sacrificial system didn't really work and going, oh, man, we got to come up with another plan. Let's get together and figure out, okay, who's going to go down there and fix this mess? Well, let's draw straws. Sorry, Jesus, you got the short straw. See ya. No, 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 that's not it at all. That in the, the eternal counsel of the Godhead, the cross was conceived long before the world was ever created. The cross was in view from the moment God created the heavens and the earth. There was never not going to be the cross. In fact, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is uh, often called the, the first gospel. And it's nine verses after the fall of man. Nine verses. Genesis 3, 6. That's when Eve takes it, eats, and gives some to Adam. Fall of man. Sin enters the world. And with sin comes death. Nine verses later, the gospel is in view. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here, right? And between your offspring and her offspring, he, notice the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Eve, he shall bruise your head, your head, not your offspring's head. Speaking to the serpent, speaking to Satan, the offspring of the woman shall bruise your head, though you shall bruise his heel. When was the heel of the offspring of the woman bruised? At the cross. But you see, a blow to the heel is far less severe than a blow to the head. And it was at the cross that the blow to the head was dealt to the enemy, the greatest enemy. And so the gospel's in view in Genesis 3.15. The cross is in view in Genesis 3.15. Way before the tabernacle, way before the sacrificial system, way before the law, here's the gospel, here's the cross. Maybe that's unconvincing for you. How about Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23? says this, Peter's preaching. He says, men of Israel, hear the, these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who crucified Jesus? Well, the Romans, yes, the Romans crucified Jesus. They physically nailed his hands to the cross beam and his feet to the, the plank. They are the ones that rose the, the cross into place. They are the ones that stood by as he suffocated to death while on the cross. They are the ones, the, the one soldier who took the, the spear and thrust it in his side. So the Romans crucified Jesus. Who crucified Jesus? How about Judas? Well, well, yeah, Judas had a hand in it. Judas is the one that went to the Jewish leaders and said, hey, you want to get this Jesus guy? I'm here to help. 
Why don't we develop a plan? We know where he hangs out, the Garden of Gethsemane. He's there so often with his disciples. He's going to be there. Why don't we make this agreement? What will you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? Well, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. Done deal. Let's do it. Let's shake on it, and let's go about our business. Judas then goes and gets them, takes them to the garden that fateful evening, and goes up to his rabbi, his teacher, and kisses him to betray him and turn him over to the Jewish authorities. So was it Judas that crucified Jesus? Yeah, it was Judas that crucified Jesus. Well, what about just the, the Jewish council in general? Because they're the ones then that took Jesus into custody and, and created these, these fraudulent trials where they brought trumped up charges against him, which they couldn't even get multiple witnesses to agree until finally they got two people to say, he said something about destroying the temple. And that's what they nailed him on in the end, according to their law. And then they brought him to the Roman authorities and said, hey, we need you to declare that he's guilty of and, and worthy of crucifixion because we don't have the power to do that. And then, of course, they had the opportunity to take Jesus back instead of Barabbas. And yet Barabbas, who was truly guilty of his, of his sin, he was an insurrectionist, they cry, we want Barabbas instead of Jesus. So did the Jews crucify Jesus? Yeah, the Jews crucified Jesus. But Acts 2, 20, 22 through 23 says that Jesus was delivered over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. None of that that we just covered takes place unless God ordains it to take place. Judas walked into the council because God was leading him into the council. Judas walked up to betray his teacher, his rabbi, because God was leading him up to Jesus. The Romans nailed him to the cross because God was leading them in doing that. Because it was part of his plan, part of his will. All of this took place according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God ordained these acts to take place to Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus that brought you peace with the Father. That atoned for your sins. Was always part of God's perfect plan for you. And I want you to understand that. And again, as we talked about last week, personalizing some of these things. To even personalize this. Because that's, that's what we're talking about here. The, the God came after you and wanted to save you, and so he delivered over his son according to the definite plan and foreknowledge that he possessed in order to save you. And that was always part of his plan. I can't imagine sacrificing my son for anyone. We get caught up so often, don't we, in this problem of sin existing in the world, right? How could God create a world where sin exists? That's the wrong question. The question we need to be asking is, how could God create a world in which sin is atoned for through the death of his son? That's the world that God created. That's the world in which we live. Think about a world in which there was never sin for a moment. And you may be thinking, well, that would be great. Like, show me that world. I want that world. Okay, but let's consider this for a moment here. A world without sin means you have no awareness of your need for Jesus. None. A, a world without sin means you really have no knowledge of God's mercy and grace. Because God's mercy and grace are only understood as responses to what? Our sin. 
A world without sin means that we really have no appreciation of God's holiness, of his transcendence, of his otherness. And a world without sin means we really have no understanding of God's wrath and his justice. So we say, well, we would love a world without sin. Would we, though? Part of the purpose of sin existing in the world is that we would know our need for Jesus. It's so that we would know God's mercy and his grace. It's so that we would appreciate God's holiness in contrast to our sinfulness. And so that we would understand more of his character by understanding his wrath and his justice. Again, the the shocking thing, the inconceivable thing, shouldn't be that God has created a world in which sin exists. But should be that God created a world in which the cross was always plan A. That he provided a solution. That by the way, whether you're Calvinist or Arminian, he is made available to everyone. That's what's inconceivable. That the death of Jesus was always part of God's plan. Never plan B. There's a movie, I I may have referenced it here before, maybe it was men's Bible study, but it's Gene Hackman is in the movie. And the, the movie's called Behind Enemy Lines. Anybody in the room seen it? It's an older movie. It's one of those like, Yes, all right, woo love to be an American kind of movie, so maybe go watch it because we could use some of that right now, right? Like there's this, yeah, whatever, go see the movie. Well, don't go see it because it's not, just rent it, down, whatever, stream it. My point is this. This guy's, as the movie would say, behind enemy lines. And he's trapped there and he needs rescue. He's in a hopeless situation. The enemy's closing in on his position. They know he's there. He's one guy. And it's, again, it's the Russians. The Russians are the bad guys. If you've got Russian family or you are Russian, I'm sorry, but you guys are always the bad guys. Um, it's you or the Germans. And uh, in this movie, it happens to be the, Ger- the Russians. So they're closing in on his position, and he's outmanned, outgunned. They're bringing tanks and everything against this guy. And Gene Hackman is tasked with the rescue mission, leading it. And he gathers his forces together, and he looks at them, and he says this line. It's one of those like testosterone firing up lines, right? He looks them in the eye. He says, gentlemen, I intend to put you in harm's way. I intend to put you in harm's way. For what purpose? To go and rescue him, right? Y'all, that's the father's conversation with the son for you. He needs rescuing. She needs rescuing. And so, Jesus, I intend to put you in harm's way. Ultimately, with the Father being the author of the harm, the full wrath of the Father poured out on the Son for you and for me. And Jesus says, What? I've come to do your will. Verse 8, back in our passage, when he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. Why? Well, he does that. He does away with the first order in order to establish the second. Old covenant gone, new covenant here. 
Jesus died to bring about the blessings of the new covenant, that you and I would be forgiven. I've come to do your will. The cross was always plan A. It was always part of God's plan. It was never plan B. Verse 10, and by that will, so now we're still talking about the will. God, I've come to do your will, the will that would lead Jesus to the cross. And by that will, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body, the body that God prepared for the Son. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, it was God's will not only that he would die for our sins so that we would be justified, but that he would die for our sins so that we would be sanctified. That word sanctified. Let's talk about that word for a minute. It's a word that means to be made holy, to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be set apart for use to, to the Lord, use for God. That's what it is to be sanctified. And you notice that it's in past tense. By that will, we have been sanctified. Now, you may be thinking you've heard of sanctification, but you thought it was more of an ongoing thing, right? Well, there's three types of sanctification, okay? There is what's called positional sanctification. That's what we're talking about in this passage. Positional sanctification series, shut up, is this. It's, it's my watch was talking. If you're wondering why I just told Siri to shut up, it's because my watch was talking to me. Positional sanctification is telling Siri to shut up. No. Um, positional sanctification is at the moment of your justification, you are set apart positionally as holy to, to the Lord. You are justified. You are declared righteous, right? So you are positionally now holy before the Lord, okay? You've been consecrated to God. That's what we're talking about in this passage. That's positional sanctification. The second form of sanctification is called progressive sanctification. That's the one that we talk about most often. That is that you and I are being sanctified. That we are continually, day by day by day, being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus, which is what it is to be sanctified. We are being made more holy. That's a lifelong process, progressive sanctification. Right? We're never done with that, this side of eternity. So positional, progressive, one more, like a good Baptist. Here's another P for you. It's, it's perfect sanctification. You will one day ultimately be perfectly sanctified. That is when you will be finally with the Lord and free from all sin and all of its effects. Okay? So positional, you are set apart as holy to the Lord. Progressive, you are being made like Jesus and then one day perfect. Well, only one of those is done, and that is your positional sanctification. And that was brought about, according to our passage, by the death of Jesus. He has done the will of God so that we would be sanctified. How? Through the offering of the body of Christ. The crucifixion of Jesus has positionally sanctified us, made us holy. To be sanctified, as, as you think about in the Old Testament, the, the vessels in the temple were sanctified. There were holy utensils that were only to be used in the sacrificial offerings. And those had to be free from blemish. Some of your parents may have fine china or guest towels that they bring out in special occasions that are only for use. They are consecrated. They are sanctified. And they're not to be used for you to grab some pizza rolls when you come home in the evening from the freezer and throw them on mom's fine china. We used to have china. I don't know if we still have it anymore. I, I think we've used it twice in our entire marriage. And once was like year one. Um, and I don't know that we've pulled it out again. We keep moving it everywhere, but um, it's not for common use. And it's certainly not for the use of all the hoodlums that live in my, in my house um, because it would not go well. But it's to be consecrated. It's to be set apart. And Jesus' death has sanctified us. Because he says, again, remember, the law, it, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law can't sanctify us. The law can't do what the, the, the death of Jesus has done. 
And that was the whole reason why the rescue mission needed to take place. That was the whole reason why the father looked at the son and said, I intend to put you in harm's way. Because you and I are helpless. Because we can't be good enough. Because the law can't justify us. All the law can do is show us that we need Jesus. That we are sinners and that we need to be sanctified with an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's not our own. And that's exactly what God has done at the cross. Point number two tonight is be grateful for Jesus' sanctifying death. Be grateful for Jesus' sanctifying death. Not just his justifying death, but the fact that now we are positionally holy. Verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's both, right? There's our, our positional and our progressive. He's perfected for all time. He has, he has sanctified us positionally, those who are being sanctified through the death of Jesus. Christ's death was intended to make you holy, positionally and progressively. That's why, y'all, we care about your godliness and your holiness and your obedience to the Lord. Because that was one of the goals, one of the purposes of the death of Jesus to begin with. He died to make you holy. And so if you're living a life that doesn't care anything about holiness and godliness, you are aborting the purpose of Christ's death on the cross for you. Paul talks about this, Ephesians chapter 5. We often talk about this in the context of marriage, and rightfully so, because he's talking about husbands and wives. But listen what he talks about when he's talking, about, talking to husbands. He said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, so now he's introduced the metaphor, Jesus and the church, Jesus and us. And what did Jesus do? Well, he gave himself up for her. Okay, there's the cross. You've prepared for me a body. I've come to do your will. I'm going to offer this body. I'm giving myself up for who? For the church, right? Gave himself up for her. For what purpose? That. For the purpose that. In order that. He might, what? Sanctify her. Make her holy. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. God has loved us in Christ all the way to the point of the cross in order to what? To sanctify us, to make us holy, to purify us for himself. And if you're saying, well, yeah, but isn't that ultimately with the end in view, with the eschaton in view, with our glorification in view? Sure it is, but really you want to live a life of total debauchery between now and then and then all of a sudden expect that God is just going to snap his fingers and you're going to be good with him when, when you die? God has not given us this life as a hall pass to just live however we want to live only to make us holy when we die and go to heaven. No, he killed his son not so that you can continue in the sinful relationships, not so that you can keep on with the pornography, not so that you can keep on with the lying and the deceit, not so that you can keep on watching the garbage on Netflix and everything else, not so that you can keep on with, with valuing things the world values. That's not why Jesus died for you. He died to sanctify you. He died to make you holy. 
It's the image of a husband and a wife. No husband marries his wife expecting her to go on and, and engage with other men and be in other relationships, right? In fact, God personified Israel's problems that way in the book of Hosea, where Hosea marries Gomer. And Gomer goes back and she prostitutes herself. And God says, go back after your wife. Hosea takes her again, and she goes again and prostitutes herself. And God says, go back and get your wife. It's a picture for the unfaithfulness of Israel. Well, y'all, we need to make sure that we are not being unfaithful to God because he has wed us to Christ through the cross for the purpose that we would be spotless. And he has you in view here tonight. Jesus died so that you will be holy, so that you will be sanctified. The blood of bulls and goats can't do this. Neither can just being a good enough person. You may have talked to people in the past and said, hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Yeah, I think I'm going to go to heaven. Why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't done this, 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 and this. You know, being a good person, it's not good enough. It can't sanctify you. Neither can morality. Neither can legalism. Neither can fill in the blank whatever. The only thing that can sanctify you is the cross, is Christ, is his love for you, is his better sacrifice for you. And the good news tonight, y'all, is that he's done that. He's died on the cross for your sins so that you can be forgiven, but also so that you can be sanctified, positionally and progressively. Isaiah 53 had this in view as well. 700 or so years before the death of Christ, the prophet writes this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I have come to do your will. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It shall be accomplished. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Even in Isaiah 53, you see the purpose of Christ's death being that he would sanctify us. That he would make us righteous. That he would accomplish the will of the Lord. 1 Peter 2.9 Peter says of the church, he says, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a holy nation, he's saying to the church. He's borrowing from language used for Israel now, applying it to the church, saying, you, church, you're a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Well, how is the church going to be holy without the death of Christ? It can't. It can't. And the way it took place, 2 Corinthians 5.21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Y'all be grateful for Jesus sanctifying death. It's the only way that we're made holy. It's through the cross, through this sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats can't do it. It just reminds us of how much we fall short. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, right? We've covered this. 
that the priest would go back over and over and over and over again. Why? Because those sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, they don't last. They don't actually have that, eff- that, that effect that transcends time, that is the once for all effect of Jesus. Look at verse 12. But when Christ, here's the contrast, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he, what? Sat down at the right hand of God. There's a contrast between verse 11 and 12. What is the high priest doing in verse 11? He is what? Standing. What is our high priest doing in verse 12? He sits down. He sits down. You might think, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. What the author is alluding to, and in, in eventually in just a minute screaming about, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 110.1, which was a messianic psalm, which says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Our author in Hebrews is saying that's Jesus, and that's where he is. And to sit down, you guys get this, right? If, if mom and dad, when you were growing up, said, hey, I've got a, a job for you to do. I want you to take out the trash. Chances are, when you took the trash out, you knew that you had to finish the job. You couldn't just take the old trash bag out and take it outside to the dumpster and put it in the dumpster and then walk back inside and go sit down on the couch and put your feet up and keep watching a, a movie or playing a video game. Because the job's not done. I know this because my 12-year-old does this all the time. Because the job's not done until you finish the job, which means my 12-year-old is often getting back up off the couch because he's got to come grab a new trash bag, fluff it out, and put it back in the trash can because then the job is actually done. So we understand this concept that when you're done with the job, that's when you sit down. Okay, That's why Jesus sat down. That's why he sits down here. Where he sits down and says... That, that he has sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 12, the, the allusion to Psalm 110.1. And our author is saying, this is the fulfillment of that. Look at verse 13. Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a what? A footstool for his feet. I have come to do your will. Verse 7, verse 12 and 13 tells us that he was successful in that. That he accomplished the will of the Father. The job was done. Now, you may be saying, but wait a minute, I thought he's interceding for us right now. He is interceding for us. But the contrast is with the sacrifice. He's done in the sense that there's no more sacrifice to be offered. He's done in the sense that he's not going to offer himself repeatedly over and over and over and over and over again. He's done in the sense that the, the satisfaction of God's wrath has already occurred for us. He is interceding for us right now, but he's not pleading a brand new sacrifice. He's pleading the sacrifice that has already taken place. He's uh, reminding of the, the, the blood that covers our sins that was shed on the cross. And so when we say he sat down because he was done, he was finished, it doesn't mean that he's not interceding for you. It means that he's done with that sacrificial work. He's done with the atoning sacrifice. And again, what did that accomplish? Look at verse 15. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. That's what's done. The the key to that. Remember the, the, the sacrifices? They didn't do that. They just reminded us of our sins. And in reminding us of our sins, they're reminding God of our sins. Well, what is it going to be that that causes God to say, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more? The ultimate final sacrifice, the offering of Jesus Christ on our behalf. 
which is why he says in verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What is this saying? All of this is saying this. All of this is saying that the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted by the Father. Remember last week I, I, I talked about the Israelites were, were waiting for the high priest to come out from behind the curtain because it meant that, that God was satisfied with the, the offering. We, all, we don't have to wait. We know that he was satisfied with the offering because Jesus offered once for all and then sat down. Final point tonight is this. Feel relief that God accepted Jesus' death. Feel relief that God accepted Jesus' death. Been to, to Disneyland, I trust most of you in the room. I don't know what it's called now, Avengers Tower or whatever, but the, the old Hollywood Tower of Terror. I remember being on that ride and just going, okay, I really hope that these harnesses do what they're supposed to do. I hope they work. And the whole dropping thing, right, which is like fun for some people, and I just am done with it. I'm just over it. I don't need to be dropped. I also don't want to go underwater. God didn't give me wings. He didn't give me gills. <laughs> think he was pretty clear in the message that he was delivering. But the dropping, right? And then finally the ride ends and you get down and, and you may not want to admit it, but you know it. All of you in the room, there's a sense of relief. It's like, thanks God that that's done. And may I never be foolish enough to get back on that ride again. <laughs> that sense of relief that it worked. Okay, how much more relief should we have that Jesus' death worked? That the sacrifice worked? Hebrews 10, 17, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. That is as good as done. That's what the author is saying here. Jesus has accomplished that. It's done. It's secure. If you are in Christ, you can take that promise to the bank that God will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more. Because there's not going to be any more offering for sins. Why? Because Jesus has offered the once for all sacrifice. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That means you don't have to worry that you're going to need another sacrifice other than the one already offered by Jesus. Here's the promise that I will give you with my leaders in the room. You will never go to your leader to confess a sin to your leader and have them respond by saying, okay, well, you need to do fill in the blank in order to receive forgiveness from God. It's never going to happen because that's not how forgiveness works. You don't bring anything to the table in this. In fact, to bring your obedience to the table and say, God, will you forgive me because I've done X, Y, and Z is an insult to God because essentially you're looking at the cross of Jesus Christ and saying, that's not enough for me. Bible reading, purity, prayer, church, attendance, etc. None of those things should be about us earning favor with God or earning forgiveness from God because we can't. We have all of the favor of God that we could ever have because we have Christ. We are righteous with the righteousness of God because God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So will you please stop feeling like you have to clean yourself up before you can come to the Lord? A couple scenarios. Scenario number one. You've been in a rough patch with a particular sin for a while. You're even feeling at times like that sin owns you. Like it's got the upper hand over you. 
And every time you come to church, you feel a little bit more of the weight of hypocrisy is what is gnawing at your soul. And the enemy is feeding you with the lies that you don't deserve to be here. That how dare you come to church after the week that you had? How dare you pray when you are struggling with this sin? How dare you be in small group and have accountability with someone when you've got this sin in your life? And you think, well, I I just have to be better then. I just have to stop doing this sin. Then God will be happy with me. Then God will forgive me. Y'all, if this is your mindset, here's the deal. You've made your obedience an offering and a sacrifice to the Lord. You're bringing your blood of bulls and goats to the foot of the cross where the blood of your Savior has already been spilled for you. you're trying to add to what Jesus has already done for you. Instead, scenario two might look like this. You've had a rough patch with a particular sin in your life. And at times, yeah, it feels like maybe it's gained the upper hand. And yeah, you do. You struggle with feeling like a hypocrite when you come to church or you try to pray and the lies of the enemy are attacking you just the same but this time you remind yourself of Hebrews 10, 18, which, by the way, says where there is forgiveness of these, there no longer is any offering for sin. And the good news that your sin has ultimately been paid for, you remind yourself that your standing with God isn't based on your obedience, but Christ's obedience And yes, you still desire to obey the Lord. You still desire to put off that sin. You still desire to battle that sin. But that desire is no longer a desire that says, if I do this, then God will be happy with me. Rather, that desire is a desire that is motivated by a love for the Lord because of what he's done for you. It's a desire that's motivated by a love for the Lord because you realize that that Christ died for you in order that you might be sanctified positionally and progressively. And so there is not a comfort with your sin. This is not a Romans 6-1 situation where you say, well, since God died for me, well, what does it matter? I'm just going to sin boldly now. No, you fight sin with everything in you, but not to be forgiven because you've already been forgiven by God in Christ. Instead, you fight sin in order to demonstrate that you are grateful, that you love, that you are thankful, that you are devoted to your Savior who has died for you. Do you see the difference between those two? Imagine going up to the Mona Lisa with some fingerprints, finger paints, and saying, hey, I'm going to make some improvements to this. Are you guys good with that? You bust out your finger paints, the ones from Michael's that you can get with a clear plastic lid. You know what I'm talking about. You get your little plastic Dixie cup full of water and you dip it in. You're like, I think she needs a smile. You just start. Or imagine adding another scene to Macbeth to make it a little bit more lighthearted. And this is pretty tragic. (laughs) We should write something that makes this a little bit better. And the end scene you write is like, and then he woke up and everything was great. And he went to Target because everybody loves Target. 
this is, what are you doing? Or imagine taking one of Beethoven's symphonies and adding a recorder solo to the middle of it. I think it's missing something. Yeah, everybody loves the recorder, so let's throw that into the middle of this. These are all ridiculous, right? And you look at that and you go, why would I ever do that? That's absurd. No one would ever do that. That is ridiculous. That should be even a, a crime to even consider doing that. Yeah, I agree. But how much more unthinkable should it be for us to try to add our good works to Christ's accomplished work? Y'all, it's even worse for us to try to do that. Far worse for us to try to do that. For us to go and, and bring our good works to the Lord and like dump them on the floor and be like, God, I, I tried really hard to be good enough so that you'll be happy with me so that we'll be okay. Are we okay now? When seated at his right hand is his son whom he crucified on a cross for you so that you would be okay with him. relief that God accepted the death of Jesus on your behalf. Do you know that right now in Jerusalem, there's something called the, the Temple Institute. You can look up their website. It's super boring. But hey, you can do it. Just be warned. You'll be bored. I looked it up earlier today. I was bored. But on their website, they say that their goal is this. Our goal is firstly to restore temple consciousness and reactivate these forgotten commandments, the Old Testament law. And we hope that by doing our part, we can participate in the process that will lead to the Holy Temple becoming a reality once more. I don't know about y'all, but after reading Hebrews 9 and 10, I really hope they fail miserably at this. I don't want the temple back. Who would want the temple back when we have Jesus? Who would want the separation, the, the Holy of Holies, the high priest, the, the, the animals, and all of that jazz? Who wants that back? The Jews do only because they have not come to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. And so they're going back to that saying, we want that. I don't want that. Some of you are trying to rebuild the temple in your own lives tonight. You're bringing your offerings. And no, it's not a bull or a goat or a Passover lamb, but you've got your obedience, your Bible reading, your prayer time, your listening to Christian music only. You're, I'm going to stop making out with my boyfriend as much. I'm going to stop having sex for a, a, a while and see if, I, see if then I'll be okay with God. Stop trusting in what you're doing and start trusting what Christ has done. Quit rebuilding the temple and the law in your lives through your obedience. You can't be good enough. You never will be good enough. And I don't mean to be a wet blanket on you, but you just won't. Neither will I. I, I will never be good enough, ever. And if you're playing a game called Christianity, trying to be good enough for God to love you, man, you will be miserable for the rest of your life, and you will run the risk of missing the good news of the gospel, which is that you're not good enough, but Jesus was. And that's the whole point of chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews is that Jesus' sacrifice is better than anything that we can bring to the table. So much better than anything that we can bring to the table. So do we just stop trying? No, don't stop trying. Stop. Yes, try to put off sin. That is good to pursue godliness and holiness. It's right. It should be a byproduct of the gospel in your life. But y'all, 
rejoice in the reality, give thanks for the reality, embrace the reality that your ultimate standing before God is whether or not you are holy and righteous has nothing to do with your works and everything to do with the work of Christ for you, which is done because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's pray. Lord, that sacrifice is better and is such good news that you have not tasked us to add to it. And the reality is we can't add to it. We can't be good enough. We can't be holy enough. We can't be righteous enough. We can't do any of that. And Lord, nor should we try as far as trying to earn favor and standing with you. Father, I'm reminded of the scene in the Gospels when Jesus is being crucified and the crowds are hurling insults at him and spitting on him. And I can't help but think, Lord, that when we try to bring our obedience to you and say, are you okay with me now, God, that I've done this? Are we good now, God, that I've done this? It's just as bad as us spitting on Christ on the cross. We are despising his sacrifice counting it as not good enough for the sins that we have committed. Lord, some in this room may still have yet to fully surrender to you, and their mindset may be, yeah, but you don't know what I've done in my life. I've got major sin in my life. Okay, we can walk through that, but know, and I pray, God, tonight that you would impress upon them that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, it's enough to cover that sin. If he could take Saul of Tarsus and turn him into one of the greatest church-planting pastors the world has ever known, then there's no one here tonight who's outside the reach of Christ's forgiving grace in the cross. And so encourage whoever that might be tonight, Lord, that they can come to the cross. Lord, I pray that if there are Christians out there tonight who have been battling sin, maybe losing that battle more often than not, I Pray that tonight they would remember that their sins have been forgiven in Christ and that their desire to be close to you because true believers will desire to be close to you, Father. I pray that they would know that that desire to be close to you, it doesn't need to wait for them to amass a certain track record or bring a certain amount of obedience or bring a certain amount of good works before you will allow them to pursue you. But tonight, if they have repented from that sin and sought forgiveness in you, they can pursue you. They can draw near to you. Even as we've studied in Hebrews chapter 4, with boldness to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Lord, we're, we're so thankful that it doesn't depend on us. But the most important thing about us, which is where we stand with you, depends 100% on Jesus. And based on your plan for redemptive history, Yes, you created a world in which sin exists, but more importantly, more significant, more inconceivable, you created a world in which sin would be dealt with at the cross through the crucifixion of your own son. Thank you for that. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You guys are